Rodney. What's happening, brother? What's happening? Shoulder shoulder exercises to bulletproof, <laughs> protect, to just I got these bands. There's I don't know. Actually, I do know the video, and I just don't remember the guy's name. I think it's Athlean X. He had these like exercises for undoing like the rounding that happens in our shoulders when we do a lot of like chest exercises, like bench mm-hmm. presses or push-ups. Or if we just sit at a desk, we sit at a desk um, and typing, and we tend to hunch, mm-hmm. and it and it tends to bring our shoulder round our shoulders in and cause some tightening in our scapula and our trap and our neck and tension in the head. So like some band exercises where you pull the opposite direction and strengthen and re and just fix your posture and keep your shoulders from being just garbage. And uh, I really like them. And I was telling you about them. And this remind I'm doing this to remind me to send you that video. There's mm. <laughs> nothing like a podcast stick to remind us to do something later. <laughs> You're welcome, world. <laughs> Life hack 101. Welcome back to More in Common, the podcast. I am your co-host Keith with my man Rodney. How you doing today, bro? What's happening? We uh, what's happening? What's good, bro? We're talking about compassion. That's what's good. And in this conversation, you know, the our, our guest Yvonne here brought up the point that it's tricky. I was like, "What do you mean it's tricky?" And I was thinking that I didn't say that out loud, but mm-hmm. she went on to elaborate that accepting people for who they are she she sees compassion as accepting people for who they are while not settling or allowing them to settle for their limitations and that is tricky it is tricky to to balance that and and do it in a in a kind and loving way and i think it's a beautiful explanation of compassion so keith what was uh what'd you take out of this conversation what do you what do you think people will get out of this yeah you know there is a reality of of phases of life that we all go through and if you're a geriatric millennial is that what we're called right now um, yeah we're geriatrics you know, because we're approaching for 40 first first year millennials will be approaching 40 is this year we're hitting 40 and there is a, a sociological ebb and flow of life and in the 40s there is said to be that you know midlife crisis and all that stuff and then coming out of it and Yvonne loves to talk about it and if you're in it and you're looking for some inspiration this is a great conversation to understand like hey if you're in it l- look forward to getting out of it but navigating it managing it and working through it and seeing the the little wins along the way um Yvonne's awesome she's a great spirit and I'm um, super excited to have this conversation. Yeah, I would just add super quickly the she really details, and this is probably through it is definitely through reflecting back on going through her midlife crisis or doldrums, breaking down like what she did and how she got through them. And it's just super, I'm not in them, but it's super helpful. And um, before we get to it, want to remind you to go to moreincommonent.com where we've redesigned our website and you can see all things that we're about. And when you get there, you can check out our consulting practice, which is newer for us. And we're guiding organizations. We're helping leaders uh, here, see and value everybody um, that works for them. And, and really we're helping change the conversation around inclusion and, and really tying it to compassion to help better the entire culture. 
but hit us up if uh if you have any questions about any of that and uh, let's get on to the show i was really looking how do you bridge that how do you how do you bridge that gap between one person's reality and another person's reality and i thought that what he had to say was really helpful and and that was one of the first things he suggested was to take a breath and to stay curious and i think another another part of his process was to to try to to ask somebody for their experience not not their opinion not anything they read not anything they heard from the news but what is their experience of a situation their personal experience of it and i was like hmm then you get into story and then you get into what is real for people today we are with Yvonne Marchese She is the host of the Late Bloomer Living Podcast. She is a professional photographer, a mom, a wife, and a serial pivoter. She grew up in El Paso, Texas. In her 20s, she sold everything she owned to follow a lifelong dream, moving to New York City, where she worked as an actress for 10 years. And she now lives in Norwalk, Connecticut, telling people's stories with her camera and a microphone. Yvonne is of the opinion that stories can change lives. Maybe not in an instant, but in laying the seeds of possibility. She's someone who works every day to embrace big, scary, beautiful change and believes it's never too late to pursue a dream. It's that belief that led her to start a photography business in her 40s and a podcast in her 50s. She's on a mission to redefine society's ideas on aging and exploring how to live life by design. Yvonne, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah. Um, well, our first question to all our guests is uh, an homage to our rapid fire and your favorite tip for navigating difficult conversations. You said something that we happen to find core to who we are, and that is staying curious. How do you stay curious when you're in a difficult conversation? Maybe you're fired up, someone's mad at you, or maybe something happened. How do you stay curious? It's tricky. It is tricky. Um, but it really does involve taking a breath. And that was the other part you said. Take a deep yeah, breath. Yeah. Yeah. So really, how do you do that part? Just simple. Just breathe Somebody's in, breathe just out. Punched you and you're like ready to go. Your body's yeah, like you, yeah. adrenaline's coursing. Like how do you right. how do you step in between that? You know, most of the time. Most of the time I'm able to do that pretty readily. I don't, I'm usually able to, to handle that. It, it gets harder when the relationship is closer to me that, you know, when it, when it's family, when it's, uh, you know, somebody who might push my buttons more often, you know, where there's more of a history of button pushing. So it does get more challenging navigating those difficult conversations in that situation. But I find that with clients, if something like that happens, I'm I'm pretty readily able to take a breath and think, okay, so what, what are they really trying to say? My husband has a, has a great thing that he says that people are never really mad about what they're, what they're mad about. And so if I can take a breath and think about, hmm, 
what's really going on here for them? Like what, what's happening? And try to, that, that usually lets me take, uh, keep it from feeling personal or like a personal attack and more about, okay, how can I, how can I, how, how can I help make this better? How can, how can I listen and really hear what the person is trying to say without getting my hackles up, without getting defensive? What about the times when you're, or do you ever have the times? Let me ask it like this. <laughs> do you ever have times where you're already, let's say, frustrated or on edge about something and then somebody drops off their baggage of whatever else it is they're mad on that they project onto you. So now in that frame, sometimes I receive that as, oh, great. Oh, sweet. Now I get to decode your crap that you're taking out on me and I'm trying to deal with this. I don't want to, like, I just, sometimes I just straight up don't want to. Do you ever have that happen? Oh, absolutely. A lot of times if it's with my kids, (laughs) they're, they're teenagers now. So, you know, there's a lot of shade being thrown around the house, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And when I'm at my best, which isn't always, but when I'm at my best, I, I let it go. I try to, and sometimes I laugh. Sometimes, you know, I try not to laugh at them, but, um, sometimes I'm just like, yep, here we are. This is, this is teenagerville. This is it you know, this is, this is appropriate. This is where they're at, you know, and whatever they're upset about, like, you know, moms can find everything, right? Like, you know, the, something's gone missing. I can't, I can't find, and the, the, the panic, you know, and I'm in the middle of trying to do whatever I'm trying to do. Right. So I'm already feeling maybe some stress around something. And then they're coming to me with mom, I can't find this, you know, and I'm just like, well, you'll find it look around, look around, you know, I'm having to learn how not to, in so many situations in my life, I'm having to learn how not to be the problem solver, how to let people solve their own problems. I'm curious, um, but you kind of answered it in the prior answer, but want to be, I want to ask it explicitly what curiosity looks like for you. A lot of it is, I guess what I mean by that is staying curious about, number one, my reaction and trying to, I try as hard as I can to take that breath so that I can notice my own reaction to the situation. And in noticing it, it loses power. And that then allows me to get curious about what that other person really means or might need and how I might not be hearing it in the way they intend it. Does that make sense? No, that makes, that makes, it's actually, um, you know, a lot of what we talk about in our practice is a, a focus on self right? Because you can't change the way someone's saying something. You can't change whatever it is that they're bringing to the table. You can assess it, but you might be wrong because most of the time, right? (laughs) Um, But you can be right about yourself most of the time if you do take that moment. 
like when someone triggers you, it's like, hmm, why am I triggered? And then how do I pause that so I can, I can react how I am at my best rather than worrying about how they are reacting towards me. Yeah. I'm trying to remember the name of a guy. I, I feel like his name is David, David Chapman or something like that. He He's an expert at um, mediation. I think he worked for the Clinton campaign at some point and he, that was something, you know, I mean, with this past year and the, the political divides and, and people's people just getting so entrenched in their positions. I was really looking, how do you bridge that? How do you, how do you bridge that gap between one person's reality and another person's reality? And I thought that what he had to say was really helpful. And, and that was one of the first things he suggested was to take a breath and to stay curious. And I think another, another part of his process was to, to try to, to ask somebody for their experience, not, not their opinion, not anything they read, not anything they heard from the news, but what is their experience of a situation, their personal experience of it. And I was like, hmm, then you get into story and then you get into what is real for people. And then to be able to take that in and acknowledge it and maybe, and not to agree maybe necessarily, but to then share your own experience, say, acknowledge it, hear them for what their experience has been, and then say, well, and this has been my experience without trying to convince them, but just with sharing. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I hope I got his name right. Well, if it's not, we'll look it up and then we'll- recognize uh, the name. Yeah. But I don't, I think that's, uh, that's very, um, it's good stuff. So- I think- You think what? The, I I wrote down a question earlier uh, when you were answering- when you were answering the first part about our significant, well, significant others are people we live with, people, the button pushing thing. And the question is for both of you, what, how frequently are you intentionally pushing the buttons of the person of people that you live with? Never, <laughs> never. Well, I can't say never. If I'm teasing, then, then maybe I'm pushing buttons, but um, more often than not, I find I've pushed a button and I didn't even realize it. And then I'm like, Oh, what I do. And then there's the backpedaling. What about what? Like, well, Keith, what about you? How frequent are you? You're not much of an instigator. I don't think. I tend not to be right. I tend not to be an instigator. I, I want to resolve conflict, not promote it. I don't want to be an antagonist. So I tend not to push buttons. I especially am attuned to people's sensitive spots. So I try to avoid them because I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And that goes, I incidentally do it though on occasion. And, and I don't know how, I think it's more subconscious than it is incidental. I think it's like, I'm irritated. So I'm going to say it, but yeah. Let's put it, let's put it like this out of 10 times of being accused of button pushing. How many times would you say you've done it? purposefully one how about you Yvonne two <laughs> I'm and I I'm think 
How about you, Rodney? How about you? Um, uh, two or three, but let's say three. Yeah. Let's say three. Yeah. But I think I. Yeah. But like, <laughs> and then when you get accused of button pushing, like especially Vietnamese, like I know you meant this. How does that feel? Like what? What? What is it? What comes up for you when that happens? It's funny. I don't know if anybody's ever accused me of button pushing. I would say that I I'm or hurting them on purpose or yeah. you know, any of the yeah deliberately um, putting pushing them aside or any of the things that can come up from right right ask me that question again has anyone ever accused you of something that you were not doing and how did that make you feel specifically when it comes to your relationship like you hurt them or you didn't hear them didn't see them and and there was an intent, an assumed intent. Yeah, well, that, so so I've been married since two thousand two. So go, you know, we're getting up there. So yeah, sure, you know, in a, in a long term marriage like that, sure. Yeah, I usually I there I get angry. I, I can be spicy. <laughs> so and a lot of times, what'll happen is I get angry, and then I'm instantly angry at myself which feeds the anger, becomes a loop. And then I have to, I really have to then kind of take a step back from the conversation all told and, and say, I, I need a break. I kind of need to go in timeout, uh, you know? Yeah. Self-imposed timeout. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Um, so that timeout then normally will give me the time to self-assess again. And get in there and look at okay, what I do. That's a skill to step away, and it's not easy. So I commend you for self-imposed timeouts. No, like they 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 should be a prescription. Like you should have your own prescription pad, and I'm gonna write write myself a prescription of a timeout because we all could be better at taking. It. Yeah, and as long as I mean, I I I've gotten good at claiming those timeouts as I've gotten older. I have realized that I need, I need to step away and just, you know, and I'll say, listen, I'm, I'm mad about, I'm mad at myself. I, I need a few minutes. I need a few minutes to just calm down. You know, what's it like for you, Rodney, when that assumption of intent is made? It's from somebody really close. It's really hurtful. And, uh, my defense, all the defenses go up and it's usually a, yeah, the defenses go up and probably the offenses too. Often. Cause it uh because that's like it's very core to me. Like I don't I don't like hurting people. I've done it. I do it. It happens. But when it when it's perceived when I didn't mean to do it, or wasn't or I or specifically when I was actively trying not to and it still happens, it's like, God dang. Like that uh and then that kind of the the anger loop. I think it turns into a shame loop for me, mm. of just uh, which turns into anger and all kinds of other stuff. Assumptions are a button of mine. Make them and I get really irritated, but I get irritated that you made the assumption, not so much what the assumption was. Um, so I attack it. Like my wife and I are constantly like, stop making assumptions and then she'll throw me, throw it back at me when I do it. She's very not subtle about that. Um, and rightfully so, because I am, I am a stickler for assumptions and, uh, I especially don't like it when someone, especially, you know, if it's Rodney or my wife, like, 
you know who I am at my core and to assume that I have malicious intent is, is a, is an, is an angering experience for me because I know I didn't mean it. So I do not. I think that's so that's well said. Yeah. I will honestly say I never have malicious intent ever. It's, that doesn't exist in you me. You do not seem you like know? a malicious person. Um, but let's let's take that moment and, and pivot to you. So thank you for indulging our conversation topic of the conversation. Because since we're all about conversation, we like to talk about yeah. conversation. That was deep. Um, but your <laughs> podcast is all about talking with people who have busted through their midlife doldrums. Um, which is a real phenomenon. And I'm really wanted to understand what the doldrums looked like for you when they triggered, how long did they last? How did you respond to them? Like we are your, we are your tapestry paint your picture, man. (laughs) (sighs) So, okay. So I'm 52. My, my midlife doldrums, I think started in, in my late thirties actually. And, um, it had to do with, with becoming a mom. I started late. So I, I had my first child at 35 and I had, um, my life goal, ambition, whatever, since I was like six or seven was to be a famous actress, moved to New York city, the whole thing. Well, I did the move to New York city. Awesome. Loved it. Pursued the acting career for close to 10 years. But towards the end of my time doing that, I started to lose, um, I wanted something more. I did. I didn't want to be famous anymore. I found out as I, as I was in my mid to late thirties, um, I didn't want fame. I didn't want the, the responsibility that goes with that. The, I like my anonymity. It's, it's, it's actually nice to be able to walk down a street and not have anybody notice you. I thought, oh, that would be awful to, to always have that. and. Once I had kids, my first one. Can I ask a question super quick? Yeah. About that realization. Was, did that cause any inner conflict or was it just like a, oh, I don't want to be famous anymore. Okay. I'm good with it. Or did you, was there any strife there? It it was interesting because then I thought, well, if I don't want to be famous, what I'm so, and, and I'm doing this acting thing, I started realizing, okay, it would be nice to have a level of recognition, like to be somebody like a Stockard Channing or an Allison Janney um, at the time where they, I think they could probably walk down the street and not be bothered, but they could, yeah, but still be able to get, you know, good roles, still be able to do the work. The, the, to tell the stories that recognized in the industry, but not necessarily on the street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because I love the storytelling part of theater. That is, as I've gotten older, I've realized that storytelling is is in my bones. That that's what I really get energy from is stories, reading, watching f- films, everything about it, podcasts, all of it is story. Um, yeah, but as a once I had my first child, I, I really was done and I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And that then became a, uh, a massive identity crisis because if I wasn't going to do that, who was I and what was I going to do? And I had a really crazy resume for anything involving regular work because everything I'd ever done was 
survival jobs so that I could keep auditioning. So to go get a real job somewhere meant like, geez, I don't, I didn't look that good on paper, you know? And I was getting, I was getting up there. And when I was 40, I went, so I was working part-time when I had little kids from home until I couldn't anymore. I I was only working when they were napping and it got crazy with two of them. And so I had to go back to work full-time and I would bid on the job for four months, had just gotten a, a, a promotion. And then the 2008 financial crisis happened and I got laid off. And that's, I, I felt like such a failure at that point. I came home and told my husband, I was like, I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. I'm lost. Who am I? What am I doing? And he said, you're going to be okay. You know, sleep on it and you're going to figure it out. So I, I slept on it. And I literally woke up in the morning and I turned to him and I was like, photography, I want to be a photographer. And I'm telling you guys, it came out of nowhere. I I love photography. I'd been trying to take decent pictures of my kids with my little point and shoot camera. I was failing miserably. Love to try to take pictures of flowers. Nothing turned out the way I wanted it to, but I had a, I knew what I liked. And all of a sudden I was like, that's what I want. And my husband very generous was like, okay. And I charged Uh, used our credit card to buy my first big camera. I enrolled in the New York Institute of Photography so I could study from home. Took about six months to find another job that I hated. And I worked part-time and did photography on the side while I, you know, for years. And so my 40s were, were tough. The, the photography really saved me. Um, just being able to pick up a camera and make something beautiful whenever I wanted to. That was, that was huge, but I was still in a job that I didn't like. And it was, it took me some time to figure out how to take that photography full time. And in fact, a second layoff is what launched me into photography full time. Cause so that's a, it's a whole other long story, but so two layoffs is what kind of pushed me into who I am now and what I'm doing now. and. I had a lot of health issues in my 40s and I was the way I was talking to myself was not nice. I had a bad attitude. I hate I, I mean just really a lot of complaints. I feel like I was complaining about everything. I must have been such a bore to talk to <laughs> cuz I don't think life of the party, huh? Oh my gosh. And I've always been a really positive person. So I don't mm. I don't know where I went for that decade. Um, but they do say that there's a natural dip in happiness that happens. It's like a U shape. And I think I've come around, I've come up from the U at this point, which happened when I was about 48. And I had a little come to Jesus moment, I guess. I, I, I was not feeling energetic. I was sluggish. I was, I wanted to nap all the time. I was hitting the snooze button every morning staying up too late editing photos and then having a hard time getting up and getting my kids to school in the morning. It was, I was kind of a hot mess. Um, is actually, this reminds me a little bit of Mel Robbins story. Um, yes, uh, I could see why there's some affinity there, but well, that's the, what happened. I read her book and her story was, it was, I was like, Oh my gosh, that's me. And the five uh, second rule is dope. Oh it, my it's, God. It's, it is it's game changing. Getting up in the morning. It's like, ah, it's uh, 5am. Literally. And it works this. 
Like uh, it is so unbelievable how how well just going five four, and I'm like up at three. I'll delay doing it. I'm like, don't start counting yet. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I just want to sleep here. Don't start like counting. counting five more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. But yeah. it just because it it just pulls you into your prefrontal. Um, the well, I was I I wanted to ask so you, you just a quick note on the photography and then the self talk like tying those together because you said. I, I wasn't very good and I knew what I liked because that's the, that's where most people stop. And you said your self-talk was self-talk was crap, but you didn't stop. So what was, what was, was there any kind of bridge for you there? Yeah. Um, I was kind of, when I, when I get interested in something, I get a little obsessive and, uh, I was fascinated. And when I picked up that big camera, and I had a little bit of instruction and suddenly just a little bit of know-how all of a sudden, mm. by the way, the fact that the camera was digital for me, I mean, I, I'm not a film photographer. Um, I went, I, I started as a digital photographer and to be able to, I literally carried that camera with me everywhere, had a big purse and I would point the camera at everything all the whenever I could. And the great thing about it was to be able to go in and look at metadata on the screen right then and there and, and, and see what I had done and then change the settings, just a tweak and take a picture of that same still subject. It was, it's always good to start with a nice still subject when you're doing this, but to be able to go, Oh, oh if I change this little thing in the setting, Oh, look at the difference there. And it was fascinating. It was just really interesting. Um, so that kept me going. So it wasn't so much about the being good. It was about the just interest in the act that kept you going. Yeah. And, and see, starting to see that I was getting closer to what I wanted and the images, um, starting to see a little, a little bit of success was like, oh, oh, wow. Look at that one. That that's so cool. Some progress, yeah. Yeah, I did that's that. Cool. Oh wow, wow, that that worked. You you said something before in your story. As you were getting to your thirties, your late thirties, you were getting up there. Now, a decade plus later, looking back on that mentality, because I I think a lot of us in our late thirties can feel that right like oh, i'm getting up there like making this change now am i going to be hireable am i going to have this and all of these weird thoughts because all of a sudden i'm 38 going on 39 and i am just about to be too old for anything how do you see that now all right we're going to take a pause there hope you like this new format Certainly let us know if you do or if you don't. Shoot us an email. Hit us up. Our contact information is on our website, moreincommonent.com. So this is our pause with Yvonne. And while we wait for part two to drop, this conversation reminds me so much of a conversation we had with Simone Canego. Definitely worth a listen if you liked this one. And just tune back in in a couple of days. And if you like this, share it. You know, like it, give us, give us a follow and make sure that we're spreading this word of compassion. All right. We'll see you in a couple of days.